Hello and welcome to the number three podcast in the Doxit podcast series. Today is Sunday, 10th of May, 2020. And my name's Fiona Stewart and his name's... Uh, my name's Philip Nitschke. And together we're the co-authors of the Peaceful Pill Handbook series. For this third podcast, we're going to be talking about two topics, both of which have much relevance to both COVID and to a good death more generally. The first topic is happy hypoxia. You might have seen the news reports. My God, they're everywhere, including on Fox News, which always makes me a bit nervous. But I guess it's one of them. Is it a myth? It's one of the myths we need to explode or is it a myth? What exactly is the relationship between happy hypoxia, COVID and a good death? And the second issue we want to cover is one that we've been talking, alluded to in the last two podcasts, and that's the Supreme Court decision in the Netherlands which allows a person to plan ahead in their advance directive for a time when they have dementia and they no longer have capacity for a kind, helpful doctor to come along and give them euthanasia. That really is a first in the world. There's no other country that has an advanced directive law that's comparable, and it's a very interesting issue. It's a pointy end, really, of the medical capacity issue in terms of -of end-of-life decision-making for us to examine. And the first topic we want to have a chat about this week is something called happy hypoxia. I mean, we cover the issue of hypoxia in depth. I think it's the longest chapter in the Peaceful Pill Handbook. It's titled Hypoxia and the Exit Bag. But we're talking about something a bit different here in terms of happy hypoxia and its relationship to COVID, aren't we, Philip? Well, it's a bit different in one way, but I mean, the idea of happy is that uh, the idea of being a happy hypoxia is something, of course, we are trying to achieve in the Peaceful Pill Handbook because hypoxia is a means by which a person can end their lives. And obviously, to be able to do it in a way which is uh, peaceful, that is happy in quotation marks, is a good thing. So the method described in that chapter you referred to in the Peaceful Pill Handbook of using uh, low oxygen to achieve an elective death. Is that what it. hypoxia means? Yeah, hypoxia simply means low oxygen. And of course, if you lower the oxygen enough, your brain doesn't get enough oxygen and you die. So as a means of death, as a means of achieving a peaceful death, the idea of using hypoxia, usually with uh, inert gas, is a very achievable goal. Now, what's happening in the media in the last week, of course, is there's a lot of attention now directed to the concept of hypoxia and people are hearing about it many for the first time because they're talking about it in the context of COVID, because it's been noticed, somewhat paradoxically, that some of the people that are coming into hospital fearing they've got the infection are found to be relatively comfortable, and yet when they measure their oxygen levels, that's one of these ways of measuring how well you're functioning and how well your lungs are functioning, they find that they're quite low. In other words, a person who's got quite low oxygen, normally something that would be considered something of a medical emergency, yet is sitting in the waiting room saying, have I got COVID and seeming quite comfortable. They're not gasping for breath. They don't have this air hunger that people describe. In fact, they look like they're doing quite well. And that's really what the basis of these stories that are appearing in the media is about, that this seems to be an unusual symptom associated with a COVID pneumonia, and they've labelled it a happy hypoxia. But of course, it does have relevance for the end-of-life issues. Okay, so let's take a few steps back here. When we're talking in the book about hypoxia, we're, we're usually talking about an exit bag. So exactly, can you make the link between hypoxia and an exit bag? 
Yes, I think the, we're talking about an exit bag only insofar as that's a practical way that people used to commonly achieve this state of hypoxia. The way it used to be achieved, the way it's still achieved in fact, a reliable and easy way to do that if you want to end your own life is to immerse yourself in a low oxygen environment and the way that was done traditionally is to fill up a plastic bag with something that doesn't have oxygen in it, usually nitrogen, and then suddenly put your head into this plastic bag and breathe away very easily but now in a zero oxygen environment. So it's hypoxia because there's no oxygen going into your lungs and of course, of course following that, very little oxygen gets into your blood, very little oxygen gets to your brain and in fact you die. So it's a hypoxic death and it's relatively comfortable provided one or two other conditions are complied with and that's what I'm going to mention I suppose we should describe today so that people can understand what makes hypoxia happy yeah, but it's not just, I mean, hypoxia is not just, doesn't just occur with an exit bag. I mean, that's also the, the scientific rationale underlying psycho, isn't it? Yes, I mean, there's several ways you can do this. The idea is to somehow, how can you get yourself into a situation where you're not getting enough oxygen? Well, clearly, by putting yourself into a room where there's no oxygen, that is a plastic bag full of nitrogen, you will have not enough oxygen. Another common, I suppose, common enough in, in principle, at least, is to be in an aeroplane which depressurizes because suddenly there everybody is in a room that is an aeroplane where there's no oxygen so you again you're having a hypoxic environment and you're getting lower and lower oxygen a couple of other suggestions which come up in the handbook what about the sarco this is a device we've been working on for some time and unfortunately has now come to something of a unnecessary or well not unnecessary but uh, unexpected halt because of the presence of the virus here in Europe. Well, a bit like being in a depressurized plane's come to a halt too. Yes, I mean, quite a lot of things come to a halt because of the way the virus has affected the world. But the idea of Sarko was simply that, that it presents you with a room, a very attractive room, a stylish and elegant room, where you are suddenly in an environment where there's no oxygen. And that gives you a hypoxia which leads to your death. And the reason it's happy, and this is what I'm going to get onto pretty soon, and the reason that the pneumonia in the early stages from COVID can be described as happier is that one other critical aspect of this is that you do not have a rising level of carbon dioxide in your body. And it's the rising level of carbon dioxide that makes a hypoxia difficult. What I don't get, Philip, is that we spent all of week before last in the first podcast talking about what a miserable death, a COVID death is, especially when it's from something like pneumonia. And yet now we're reading these news reports more recently, I think, and they've really come out in the last two weeks about all of a sudden people having low oxygen and being happy. What's going on? Yeah, well, I think this, it is important to try and tease that out a bit. I mean, the fact was that we were talking about a miserable death from COVID where your lungs fill up with fluid and you feel like they're like a wet sponge and you're exhausted trying to get air in and out of your lungs. And I mean, and you put, you put on a on a ventilator before you before you know it. Yeah, and that ventilator tries to take over that work of breathing. So what's up with a happy business? Now, what I was talking about with a happy hypoxia, it's a pre-stage. People don't actually die at that point. And as I said, they could be sitting in the waiting room wondering if there's anything wrong and yet have very, very low oxygen levels. So they're hypoxic, but they're not suffering. Now, they're not going to drop dead at that point. However, doctors, when realising their oxygen is so low, realise they're seriously in trouble. And then, of course, the 
the situation can rapidly worsen. So, so is a low oxygen level like a predictor that you're in trouble or is the medical expertise still out on that, the medical jury? Look, you're certainly in trouble with a low oxygen level. The question is whether you're happy or not. Now, of course, when you want to have an elective <laughs> death, the idea is to be happy and have a lower and lower oxygen till you die. And that's what the methods in the handbook describe. Now, I wouldn't suggest you take on a COVID infection as a way of dying because the chances are that when it's happy for a while, it may not stay happy as your lungs fill up with fluid. But of course, if you choose another strategy, such as in the book, you can keep that oxygen level low. And importantly, the point I've got to mention here, what makes it happy is that you're able to get rid of all the carbon dioxide that you're producing because you're alive. So your lungs take in oxygen and your body gives out carbon dioxide. So you've got to get rid of the carbon dioxide. Because the body's very sensitive to carbon dioxide, but it's not sensitive to low levels of oxygen. And that's correct. The, yeah, that's the point, because as you're breathing away happily, you're getting rid of your carbon dioxide and it doesn't, it doesn't relate to any feelings of distress or air hunger. And that's exactly what you want for a peaceful death. You want to get the oxygen level down and keep the carbon dioxide level down too. So your lungs have got to be functioning and at the same time, you've got to have some way or some strategy or some mechanism where there's not enough oxygen getting into your blood. And that's what the methods in the handbook describe. All right, well, I mean, I'm still not totally clear, but I mean, I, I guess all the all media like a, a, you know, a cute phrase, happy hypoxia, or maybe it's a happy news story linked to COVID. I mean, what, why have why are there all these plethora of reports all of a sudden about happy hypoxia? Well, I think you've noted it there. I mean, it is a nice, it's a nice byline, happy hypoxia. People think it's, it's catchy. People think, what the hell is going on here? Death isn't happy. And I think they're drawing attention to the fact that this is an unusual symptom. It's been reported and it's attracted some attention. And the idea of the use of the word happy is the fact that there's people quite sick, but not distressed. Now, of course, it also yes, leads on not to distressed at that yet. point. Uh, then the situation can rapidly worsen. So I suppose the media are using it, or at least the medical profession are using it more or less as a warning that if you may be developing an pneumonia from COVID, you may be feeling a lot better than you actually are. And so the suggestion has been made that everybody should perhaps have a look at their oxygen levels, which actually isn't that hard to do. You need a little device called a pulse oximeter, which you can clip on your finger and get an instant reading of just how low your oxygen levels are. They should be sitting up at above 95. And then now for a bit of personal disclosure, I noticed you've dug out your own, what is it? Oximeter? Oximeter. Oximeter. Pulse oximeter. It measures your pulse you managed, rate. You've actually had one and you've managed to find it. And now I notice that every morning when you wake up, you're, you're testing your own oxygen levels. Well, us hypochondriacs <laughs> like to do that, of course. I mean, we like to monitor. Well, now you got me being tested. Everyone should test their own oxygen levels on waking up. No, I don't think it's as serious as that. But it is, a, it's a very useful device and they're very cheap. Although having said that, I had a look yesterday and I found that you can't buy them for love or money. Now the world has sold out of these well, devices. Amazon and eBay. Yeah, and they used to cost about $30 and now you can't get one. But the point is they're very simple and they will give you immediately your pulse rate, which of course you can also take by simply measuring your heart rate, but they measure it and give you your pulse rate and the level of oxygenation of your blood. In other words, how much oxygen is getting into your blood? So if your lungs are working, and you're in a normal air environment with 21% oxygen, it should be sitting there at 99%. Is there an optimum um, time during the day that you would do this? Or no, like if you were looking for low oxygen level, if you thought you're feeling a bit cloudy in thinking, for example? That's what you should do. 
that's when you should do it. And it doesn't matter if it's night or it doesn't matter if it's first thing. No, it should be sitting up there. If you've got good functioning lungs, it should be sitting up there at 98, 99 all the time. If it starts dropping down to the less than 90, into the 80s, something's not right. Now, if you're feeling good and it's down at uh, less than 90, then something really should be alerting you to just be careful here. Watch this. Uh, you may not be feeling breathless. You may not develop air hunger, which is an awful symptom. Feel you haven't got enough air and to be gasping for breath is dreadful. Uh, of course, that's what usually takes people in to see doctors, but you may be sitting there with a low oxygen, which should result in air hunger, but because the carbon doctor is being got rid of, then of course you don't develop this symptom, and so you can miss those early warning signs. So it just draws attention to this whole issue, and it's important to the right to die issue, because these are the strategies that we use, that is, people who want to have a good death, so that they can not only employ the hypoxia, but keep it in a peaceful way and end their lives when they wish. And that's usually, as we said earlier, with the exit bag or with the sarco perhaps, or with the rebreather, the device we've recently included. So you're saying it helps, if you measure your oxygen levels, it helps with your decision-making about whether you would go to hospital or... From a I point mean, of view... I mean, what's, that, what's the, really the link between a good death and... So the, really, the link levels. is that it has people discussing the physiology of death and dying using low oxygen levels, and so that's good for us. It gives some informed comment. But I suppose that from a practical sense, people that are worried about the possibility of getting the infection from COVID should know about this so that they're aware that they perhaps don't leave things too late. Uh, and I guess one of the ways to do that, if you're feeling even a momentarily breathless, why don't you just get one of these devices and get your oxygen level checked and if it is low, then seek some help if you don't want to die. If you do want to die, well, that's a different matter altogether. Then you should get a copy of the Peaceful Bill Handbook and look at the hypoxic chapter. Now, I was interested to read this week that, um, according to the CDC in the US, the Center for Disease Control, that 25% of people with COVID don't actually know they've got it. Well, yes, and that's of course, then they may be actually at some stage during that infection experiencing periods when their oxygen is very low but they don't have the symptom of breathlessness they don't realize perhaps they don't realize and will have got a rather modest temperature rise that's the other symptom which is almost universal and so they may just not, not notice it at all so i mean it's fair enough to just let that go they'll recover and they'll go back to what they're doing they've had an infection probably perhaps don't even know they've had it and until antibody tests become universally employed they'll never know they've had it so that doesn't really make a lot of difference. But if you are feeling that there may be something wrong, a simple check is with this level measurement of your pulse, of using an oximeter to see your level of oxygen in your blood. All right, well, that's the issue of the happy hypoxia down pat, moving right along. The second issue we wanted to talk about today, the second topic, is the decision recently of the Dutch Supreme Court. Now, for those people who haven't been following this debate, and hey, you know, if you don't live in the Netherlands, you might not have been, but last year, the year before, there was a case where a woman was demented, the news media reported it as though her doctor came along to give her euthanasia at a time when she had no idea where she was, what was happening, what she was doing. The doctor came along to give her euthanasia because she had requested it in the in the, in the instance that she got bad dementia, and that she wanted a doctor to come along and put her down. 
Now, she, this woman, woman, the patient we'll call her, was so demented that she actually needed to be sedated with a sedative in her coffee before the lethal injection could be administered by the doctor with the family present. Now, some people have said that this is Dutch euthanasia law having gone one step too far, or maybe five steps too far. Now, the upshot of this for the doctor concerned was that not only was she chastised by the medical body, but the public prosecutor in the Netherlands decided to investigate the case further. There's, I mean, even though it's the Netherlands, there's still, it's still correct to say that there's considerable polit- political pressure on doctors in the area of patients with dementia. Yeah, look, this is interesting, isn't it? I mean, the Dutch are a unique, it is a unique country because they've had this situation since 2001 where an advanced directive that is a written request when a person can't give consent because they are no longer able to, probably from dementia or something like that, can be taken as a way of giving permission for them to be put down or killed. As they, Effectively, that's what the law would say. And this is pretty unusual. And some people say it's very wide-ranging. And, of course, it alleviates a lot of people's fear about the idea that they might slip into a dementia and lose the option of an elective death at the time of their choosing. So it's a good law, but of course, when it was when it was taken and explained in some detail in this account, it was just described to you of the person who was so demented they didn't know which day it was, had to be sedated to know why there was someone giving them an injection to kill them. People started to worry a bit and they thought, is this the Dutch law going one step too far? And, of course, a number of opinion pieces appeared in the Dutch press suggesting that was the case after the Supreme Court effectively endorsed what the doctor had done. The doctor must be firstly extremely relieved that she did the right thing by following the person's advance directive. Yeah, I think she must be incredibly relieved because when people started to read about it, what's this, where relatives are holding the patient down and slipping drugs into a tea. So I mean, where's, you, the, where's the decision-making, the autonomy yeah, and, and, and the capacity and all they, there? All they've got is a piece of paper flapping around that says that some time ago, if she was like this, can someone please come along and kill her? So, I mean... But this, te- I mean, the whole case teases out the wholly problematic nature of dementia because, I mean, I think Bert Kaiser was saying in Trowell newspaper during the week in his opinion article, you know... Is it, do you measure the dementia by when she tries to step into her bra with her left leg or wash her face with a toothpaste or poop in the laundry basket, as he puts it? Yes. I mean, you can't plan for every instance of dementia. Okay, if I'm, if I'm in a nursing home demented and I get enjoyment out of a pleasant day when the birds are chirping and the sun's shining, but I don't really know where I am. I mean, at what point do you say... If I have this situation, put me down. If I have that situation, don't put me down. Very I mean, it's hard. impossible. It's extremely difficult, and maybe she's very happy trying to get her left leg into a bra. I mean, you can you can see that this person can be sitting there, as you've suggested, getting enjoyment out of the birds chirping, and yet completely out of control. And yet they've left a previously correctly filled out and endorsed piece of paper saying that if I have anything like this, please kill me. But now they're too demented to even retract that in an advanced directive. And too demented to know what it is you're doing when you come along with their advanced directive, read it, and start then giving them a lethal injection. And that's the problem. What do you do in these situations? And this is what we call the dementia dilemma. It's difficult. And, of course, many doctors, and I can understand this, find it a little bit unpalatable, the idea of coming along 
Whereas they may be totally supportive of a person who sits there and say, look, doc, I've got cancer, it's awful, please kill me. That's one thing. But someone who's lying there not knowing which day it is and all that's there is a piece of paper. And then you decide, oh, well, the paper says kill them. Let's kill them even though they don't know what you're doing. Now, that's a step, one step, some would say, too far for doctors. I think in some ways this cuts to the chase on in terms of whether dementia is suffering and the one the one condition that the Supreme Court decision has has put on the issue of advanced directives and dementia is that suffering must be present in the person who's previously written that if they've got dementia in their advanced directive if they get dementia that they want to be given euthanasia by a doctor so suffering must be present but then that suffering that determination of suffering has then been given back to the, the doctor's concerned. It's the doctors who will assess the situation and decide, is there enough suffering to warrant going ahead with the euthanasia for the demented person? Yeah, I'm uneasy about it. I mean, what, the thing that makes me most uneasy about this, what some would say a very progressive piece of Dutch legislation, is, of course, at this point it re-effectively positions the doctor as the person who makes the decision. It puts the doctor back into this pivotal position of determining whether you die or not. They will sit there and say, well, I think this person's suffering. Even though you're sitting there smiling at the birds, the doctor says, well, I think this person is suffering. And so therefore, because I think they're suffering and I've got this advanced directive, I'll go ahead and kill them. I mean, presumably, though, the doctor are consulting with the nursing home staff and with the family of, of the person involved. Yeah, all I mean, of those things. I mean, the, con- the context, the situation is taken into account. But I guess you're right. I mean, ultimately, the decision-making... The decision-making comes back to the doctor involved. Yes, and it's hard to see how to avoid this. I mean, I've speculated perhaps that the idea should be that if we want people to make this very important decision, it's a lot to put on anyone. I mean, this was the whole point, I guess, back in the Northern Territory in the 90s, that you never wanted to be the person to make that ultimate decision of putting the needle in someone's arm. I mean, it's something that Dutch doctors and Belgian doctors and others do all the time now. But nobody does it willingly. No, I didn't. I mean, in the Territory, I didn't want to be the person who gave the injection. I recognised they had a right. Now, they could be sitting there saying, please kill me, doctor, I want a lethal injection. I'll say, okay, here's an injection. I will put the needle into your your arm, but you press the button. But you can't say that to a demented person. No, you can't. So there's no machine that's going to get around this per se. Well, there is, and this is the whole point. This uh, This is, I think, where we're going in the future here, and this is something that needs to be brought out into debate, and now is a very good time to start talking about it. But before we move on to the possibility of new technologies to sort out the dementia patient problem, one thing that you've suggested is that, well, uh, even as a former doctor yourself, I mean, you have sympathy with the line that this is too much of a responsibility. It's a passing of the buck back to the medical profession, which is both um, unkind for that person, or very difficult, makes that job of being a doctor extremely difficult, and doctors themselves will be asking, is this what I signed up for? But it also consolidates the medical privilege in that person, so you don't like the symbolism of that. So you've come up with this suggestion, well, maybe there should be a state-sanctioned board of approval. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think this, I mean, we could say, I guess it's got nothing to do with doctors anyway. You want someone to determine 
whether this person's valid advance directive should be acted upon in the context of their current demented state. Now, putting that back onto the doctor to then carry out the execution, for want of a better terms, I think is too much. We could have other people specially trained by the state who could check a person's documentation, check that the uh, advance directive is valid, check that the person is suffering, and then go ahead and administer the It's just sort of like injection. a guardianship board or something. Yeah, a guardianship board of a practitioner. It's got to be not only a board to approve the process, but then you need someone to come along and give the injection. I mean, this injecting people who don't know what you're doing I think is a difficult, difficult role, and that would be something that I think you need special people for, and I don't think too many doctors are going to really relish this. And as you say, many would say, this is not what I signed up for. Now, there could be other people that do this, and I think that's one way around it, although I myself personally think we want better technological solutions, and there are technological solutions that you could look into. But just before we talk about the technological solutions, I mean, where do you think the debate now is going to head in the Netherlands? I, well, after the endorsement by the Supreme Court, I think that what we'll see now, as we've seen in many of the opinion pieces that are appearing in the press from Bodwan Chabot, for example, and the one you mentioned. Yeah, but he's, like a, he's, a, he's a doctor, Bert yes. Kaiser. Yeah, Bert Kaiser. These are doctors. Well, either the people are saying, well, well, what they're saying is I'm not too happy about this and I can I can sympathise with their views. And then we have the opinion piece by Miriam de Bontruder and her fellows, well, former Supreme Court justice. Yeah, so you, then you have people that have got a legal background coming along and say, come on, get over it. This is the law. Let's 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 appreciate what the Supreme Court has done. Look, I think we can appreciate what the Dutch Supreme Court has done without necessarily seeing this as the best solution to the dementia dilemma. I mean, de Bontritter is saying that she wants to see advanced directives define suffering within them. I mean, I mean, it seems to be a standoff between, well, the, 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 the legal profession say, well, over to the doctors, and the doctors are going, nah, not me. Yeah. Work it out. We need another solution. Well, that's right, and it's in that context I think, okay, let's have a different class of person perhaps to do it. But, yeah, there's a standoff and there's no easy answer. Or no. let's think outside the square. Yeah. Or let's think outside the square, and that's where I think we should go. All right, Philip, so we have a, a square that we should be thinking outside. Well, I mean, outside of. What, what, what on earth are you talking about? Oh, look, it's, these are ideas that have been around. They came, up, uh, they came up in a new tech conference one we had in Toronto a few years ago, then we had... That was in 2017, I think. New Tech Conference in Cape Town. A different person suggested the idea then, and we've had a piece in the conversation not too long ago by a Dutch academic about the idea of using new technologies to be able to determine when a person dies. And these are, of course, relating to a devices that can in some way assess the way you're thinking and on the basis of you not passing some predetermined test, which you've agreed to, then the device ends your life. Now, now device. A, so the the device is implanted in your body. Is this, well, it, is, this where, is this what we're talking we're about? We're talking largely in, as a theoretical concept now, and I'm not going to go into the practicalities of it in any detail other than to say that this is a very exciting future, I would argue, where a person could have, let's just imagine this, an implantable device which presets so that when you don't know what the device is there for and don't know how to activate it, that is to stop it functioning, the device ends your life. So you've allowed this to happen. You've given permission, if you like, in the same way that the advanced directive does, but this in a very practical way. You've given permission for a device to enact 
your advanced directive. So the device kills you. It's not up to some doctor to come along and try to work out what you were talking about 10 years ago when you wrote the document. The device knows what you were talking about and acts upon it. So this, I think, is a way we have to go on this uh, this uh, uh, dementia dilemma, as I keep referring to, because there are no easy answers to this, yet it is a topic which worries the hell out of a large number of our members. People say, it's all very well knowing how you can end your own life, but what if I get dementia? And this is an important and essential discussion we've got to have. So as a theoretical concept, can you give us any indication, something more practical? I mean, Come along to the new tech conference, which we're having later this year, and learn <laughs> plug, about plug, where plug. we're at. Look, I don't want to go into this in more detail. I want to simply talk about the ideas, think outside the square. The answer is not just how can we try and work out how an antiquated law suggesting we can use an advanced directive can function. Let's look at a different Well, are we talking about an app, maybe, that you have to engage with? Yes, an app that you have to engage with. I'm trying to so, think outside the All right, so an app that you have to engage with every day, you have to say to the app, I want to live, and you stay alive. And the day you don't know what that app's doing, the day you've forgotten because you've become so seriously disabled mentally that you don't know what the app is there for, is the day that the device will turn around and kill you. Now, that's, I think, a brave new world, but I would also suggest a better world than the one we're moving into where we try to empower things like advanced directives. So in concluding, I mean, there's part of me that loves the idea that you can actually put dementia as a circumstance in your advanced directive where you would want to be given euthanasia. I mean, it's so forward-looking, I mean, it's typical Dutch pragmatism to the nth. I mean, but also my understanding is Belgium has a similar law. But you look at every other country in the world, and I, I remember years ago when um, that New Zealand politician, Marianne Street, she proposed an advanced directive law that actually had dementia as part of it. And we were looking, we thought to each other at the time, wow, that's so progressive, a little old New Zealand. I mean, it never went anywhere. And any time dementia comes up in the end-of-life choices debate, it's always like, well, if you get dementia, it's too late. You can't go anywhere with it. You've got to act early. And that does actually mean that some people go early. For example, there's just been a woman from Oregon who had a dementia diagnosis, didn't qualify for Oregon's law, but she was able to go to Pegasus in Switzerland. Moving on from dementia, and also next week, moving on from COVID. We've spent three weeks talking about COVID, and with lock lockdowns, I think in some countries anyway, starting to ease, we want to turn our attention to something other than. So next week, we're going to be talking about the lethal inorganic salts. We're going to talk about the legal, legal issues and the legality of substances such as the salts, which have no criminal restrictions to them in any countries. They are lawful. Now, if you're interested in sending us a voice memo, we'd love to hear from you. The link to record your voice memo to us is on the Exit podcast page. And that's also where you can find the Doxit podcast series. But you can also listen to us on Spotify and Anchor. And we will put, be, also be putting out the link on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, Philip will be doing that. So thanks for listening this week. We look forward to hearing from you during the week and catching up with you next week. Goodbye for now.